0: And I imagine that as we think about 1 Samuel, many of us, uh, if you've been in the church, you're familiar with a lot of the main characters in 1 Samuel. You've heard of Eli and Samuel, you've uh, heard of Saul and of Hannah, and of course we've heard of David, right, the great king over Israel. We've heard of these great characters, and maybe we've even read some of the stories, right? We're familiar with David and Goliath, and maybe we've even read Hannah's great song in chapter two which we'll get to next week so maybe we're familiar with some of the stories and some of the characters but i imagine that very few of us have actually spent a lot of time in first samuel it's not one of the books that we often are going over and that we're reading in our bible studies or or in our regular devotions we maybe skip right past the some of the details in this book and so before we jump in it's important for us just to get reoriented or oriented to the book itself for samuel the is written well we're actually not sure who it's written by it bears samuel's name but But we're not sure if samuel is the author we we think that maybe he authored the early portions But we know that he dies before the whole book is over and so he couldn't have written the entire thing And so we're unsure who the author of the book is For samuel is also a historical narrative It's a historical narrative it's recounting the different events that took place during this time in Israel's history, but what's fascinating about historical narrative Generally speaking, but specifically for Samuel is that often moral judgment and declarations are not taught They're observed So we'll come to portions throughout first Samuel where we'll see something or we'll hear something that might sounds or smells kind of fishy and we wonder why is it that the narrator doesn't say this is wrong like, for instance, we're going to read about the polygamy of Elkanah today. Well, the narrator doesn't go, he, was, he had two wives, and, well, that was a big problem. The narrator doesn't say that, and so we might wonder, like, why, why don't they say those sorts of things? Why don't they just make these moral declarations? Well, it's because the narrator actually wants us to be good readers. We have to look at the course of the events that take place. We have to look at the whole of the person's life to discern why it's wrong or right? What occurs in this person that, that might give us an indication of whether this is an approved practice or a disapproved practice? And just in case you're wondering, like, polygamy's not okay. <laughs> uh, there's many passages we could turn to about God's declaration for humanity, for marriage that's between one man and one woman, but, but the narrator doesn't say that. But we're going to see even here in 1 Samuel 1, that having two wives doesn't work out so well for everybody. And so even that points us to the fact that it is uh, something that we should uh, turn away from. So it's a historical narrative that that shows us moral judgment rather than telling us. But also this book is functioning as a transition book between the time of the judges and the time of the kings. In fact, it comes at the very tail end of the time of the judges. Samuel himself is said to have judged over Israel. And what do we know about the time of the judges? Well, we know it wasn't a very good time. It was a very dark time. God's people were engaged in all sorts of immoral behavior. In fact, there are two refrains that are repeated throughout the book of Judges. Imagine if you've read through Judges, you, you might even be able to recite one, one or both of them. Right? The first one is, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Probably some of you have read that before in Judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They were doing what they thought was right, not what God thought was right. And then at the end of the book of Judges, we're introduced to this new refrain that is repeated. And there was no king in Israel. In fact, that's how the book ends. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and in those days, there was no king in Israel. And so the book of Judges is painting for us this very bleak, this very dark picture of the state of Israel. And what is preparing us for is the coming of the king. God's care for his people through this one who would be anointed. And that's what Samuel is picking up on. Samuel comes into the time of Israel, into this bleak time when the people are living immorally, when there is no king to restore them. But the hope of 1 Samuel is to describe for us, to tell us how it is that God is going to save his people, how he's going to care for his people through a king. All right, well, that's enough background for this morning. There's much more we could say as far as background, but let's go ahead and dive into the text. So if you would follow along, 1 Samuel chapter 1. There was a certain man of Ramathim, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penaniah. And Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penaniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord... She used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And to Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten <clears throat> excuse me, and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now the Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went on her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him. So that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up for her, with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I've lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you do show care and grace and goodness to your people. And so we ask that you would show that same care to us now. You'd show it to me so that my words would honor you. Father, I am in need of your grace. So that you would show your care to all of us so that our meditations would please you. Father, we are all in need of your grace. So we ask that you would pour it out on us. Care for us now through your words so that we would honor you with our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, I want you to think of something that you long for. That you long for. Now, now that language, longing, might be too evocative. Maybe you don't use that sort of language. I long for something. So, so something that you desire or something that you really, 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 really want. Okay? Think of something like that. And I'm not talking about just, like, uh, food when you're hungry or, like, you're, you're really desirous of that new season of your favorite show to drop on Netflix. I'm not talking about those sorts of desires or those sorts of wants. I'm talking about something that is great, something that is significant, something that will bring you happiness, joy, satisfaction. I want you to think of something you've longed for. Maybe even right now, this morning, January... 2020 in roanoke virginia there's nothing that comes to mind but what have you longed for in the past maybe it's a job you're desirous of a new job because you want something you want a new vocation a place where you can give of yourself where you can find joy and you can find purpose in your work maybe maybe it's in a new spouse a spouse maybe it's in a husband or a wife You just want to be loved and known and to love and to know with great intimacy. Maybe it's that you want a child. You're longing, you're desirous of a little boy or a little girl to care for. Maybe it's that you're sick and you're longing for relief. That your body is hurting or your mind is in a fog or your spirit is clouded and and you just want relief. What do you long for? You've got it? Well, Hannah longed for things. She longed for one thing, for a child. Hannah was an Israelite woman living in the ancient Near East, and in this time, in this culture, having children is how women found their value, how they were given cultural esteem. That the number of children they bore, that's, that was something to be uh, lifted up, to be exalted in, and yet Hannah was barren. She had longing, she had desire, but that longing hadn't been met. That desire had not been satisfied. And so how would she feel? How do you think she felt? How would you feel? I mean, when that job doesn't come, and it seems like you're surrounded by all your friends who love their work. Or when, when you have no spouse, but, but all your friends are couples. Or when you want a child, and it seems like every single person your age has many children. Well, in those times, we feel sad, don't we? And downcast, we feel alone, like no one understands what we're going through. And that's what Hannah, Hannah felt. In the midst of her unmet longing, she was alone. I mean, think about the different characters in this passage. Elkanah, Penaniah, Eli, right? How do they respond to her? Well, Penaniah, the other woman, right? She mocks her. She ridicules her. She... Treats her poorly. Elkanah, her husband, we're told he loved Hannah. He gave her a double portion, but, but notice what he says when she's crying, when she's weighed down. He says, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart so sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? You remember I said that the narrator narrator doesn't always tell us what we're supposed to think about people. We're supposed to observe their actions. Well, we're supposed to hear those words and we are to roll our eyes at Elkanah. Because Elkanah, though he is trying to love his wife and though he is trying to care for her, he is totally oblivious to her needs. Am I not more to you than 10 sons? I mean, come on, dude. Like, you're not even giving all of yourself to her. She has to share you with another woman. He is the epitome of the emotionally disengaged husband. Men, this is not the guy we are to look to. (laughs) Elkanah Elkanah is oblivious to her needs and Penaniah is mocking her and even Eli, the man of God. He can't even distinguish between heartfelt prayer and drunkenness. He looks upon her and assumes that she is drunk. He misunderstands her. Penaniah mocked her. Elkanah, her husband, is oblivious to her, and Eli misunderstood her. In her longing, Hannah is alone. She's alone. So, what would she do? What would you do? Well, if you're like me, we. We busy ourselves with work and we veg out in front of Netflix for hours upon hours upon hours. Or, or we turn to eating or to drinking or we exercise excessively. We do anything we can to rid this from our minds, to get it as far away from our thoughts as we possibly can. But what does Hannah do? It's not how she responds. No, Hannah instead goes to the Lord. She turns to the Lord in her grief. She turns to the Lord in her aloneness. She cries out to him in verses ten and eleven. Eleven, we read, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly, and she vowed a vow and said, "O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. No razor shall touch his head." She goes to the Lord in prayer with humility. With humility did you notice how she refers to herself? 3 times she calls herself a servant. More specifically, she calls her herself your servant. You see when Hannah comes before the Lord, she doesn't come with force, she isn't demanding, she's not listing out all of her accomplishments. She simply lays herself before the Lord and says, "I'm your servant." She's humble. The great churchman J.C. Ryle once said, the root of humility is right knowledge. The person who really knows himself and his own heart, who knows God and his infinite majesty and holiness, who knows Christ and the price at which he was redeemed, that person will never be a proud person. You see, as we approach the Lord in prayer and we recognize who we are and who God is, that this is the God over all of the earth, he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the one who can answer our prayers. And we are but servants. How can we not be humble before him? We go to God in our need with humility, but we also go with hope. That's where, what we see with Hannah. She speaks of her situation as one of affliction. And so she asked the Lord to look on her affliction and to remember her, to not to forget her. And this language of affliction, of remembering, this is reminiscent of the book of Exodus. So you remember in the book of Exodus, God's people are under affliction. They're under affliction because Egypt has put them in slavery. And they're living under these taskmasters, these wicked taskmasters who are treating them horribly. And so what do God's people do? Well, like Hannah would later, they cry out to them, to him in his, their affliction. And in Exodus chapter 3, we're told that God said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, and I have heard their cry, and I know their sufferings. You see, Hannah had hope that the God who had seen the affliction of Israel, of the corporate people of God, that he would see the affliction of this servant as well. She had hope that the God who heard their cries would hear her cry, that the God who knew their sufferings would know hers. And he does. In verse 19, we're told after Hannah cries out to the Lord that he remembered her. He remembered her. What a beautiful thing. God has not forgotten Hannah. God has not... forgotten this one who is alone. God has not forgotten this one who is afflicted. He remembers her and he remembers us. Friends, this is why in our distress and in our pain and when we are alone that, that we can have hope. Hope not only because God knows Hannah's sufferings but because he knows our sufferings. Hope not only because God heard Hannah's cries, but because he hears ours. We can have hope. I mean, just think about the seasons that we came out of, the seasons of Advent and Christmas, when we celebrate the Lord's coming, when Jesus took on flesh and he was born of Mary, and and he lived a perfect life. And what did that life look like? Well, Jesus himself experienced suffering and pain and affliction. I mean, there was celebrating and joy, absolutely, but but Jesus knows our sufferings. He knows our pains. He knows what we have been experiencing because he too has experienced it. And yet when he did, he never failed. He never faltered. He never sinned. He never gave it in, but yet he continued to lead a perfect life And in doing that, he shed blood for you and for me so that we now can approach the Lord. We can enter into the throne room of God with boldness, with confidence in the work of Christ to call out to him in our need, to cry out to him in our affliction, to say, remember me when I am alone. See, friends, that's why we can cry out. That is why we can have hope. So go to him. Approach him. With humility, with hope. With hope that we will find relief. And that's what Hannah finds. She finds relief when she calls out to God. And we know how the story goes, right? We've read it. Hannah's given a son. But what's amazing is that Hannah actually starts to experience the relief that God gives her even before the son comes. I mean, we hear it. Eli, after realizing she isn't drunk, in verse 17, he says to her, Go in peace. And the God of Israel, grant your petition that you have made to him. And Hannah said to him, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went away and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Her face was no longer sad. Now what's interesting about this is that this isn't, like, this isn't a guarantee. Eli doesn't even know what she prayed for. Right? That's not, Hannah didn't say what she prayed for. She just simply said to Eli, I'm, I'm praying in my anxiety and out of my vexation. And so she receives this benediction. She doesn't get this word like Mary and Elizabeth would later from the angel that you will bear a son. She, she has no guarantee that she will bear a son. And yet she walks away no longer sad. You see, Hannah finds relief from her burdens She finds relief from her anxiety. She finds care in God himself. In crying out to him, in laying all of her her anxieties before him. You see, Hannah's realizing that God is the one who will meet her needs. That God is the one to whom she will experience relief and care from. And so we have to ask ourselves, when we cry out, when we are filled with anxiety, when we are weighed down by burden. Is God enough? Is he enough? Is he enough? Like, what if you cry out and you ask and God doesn't give you what you're asking for? I mean, like, that's happened to all of us, right? We will experience disappointment, absolutely and we may feel sadness, that that is not, that, that is to be expected. But even then, is God enough? I mean, if you don't get that job, students, if if you get cut from the team, if you don't get accepted into that school that you're wanting, parents, if your children never live anywhere near you. will we still put our trust in God's care? Because if we only know God's care in what he gives us, then really we're not looking to God to care for us. We're looking for the thing that he gives. And I'm going to tell you right now, that will never be enough. It will never be enough. You will never find relief. But in God crying out to him in our anxiety, in our loneliness, in our burden. We find him who is better than all the gifts. You see, the giver is better than the gifts, y'all. That is what we are ultimately in need of. And that's what God gives to Hannah. And that's where she finds relief. And so how does she respond to this? How do we respond? How are we going to respond? Well, Hannah responds with commitment. Commitment. She responds with commitment. In verse 11, we heard her vow. She prays, she says, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. So she's making a vow here. Now listen, this isn't Hannah like pushing God into a corner and saying, you better do this. (laughs) That's not what she's doing. She's simply saying, God, if you would do this, if you would grant me a son, then I will give him over to you. I will, no razor shall touch his head. This is uh, invoking the Nazarite vow. These men are people who would be given over to the Lord's service. And one of the ways they would show their devotion is that they would not cut their hair. And so Hannah's putting him into the Lord's care, and so she fulfills her vow. When God grants her a son, she fulfills her vow. That's what we see in verses 21 and following. And this really shouldn't surprise us because Hannah's a holy woman. She's pious. She's dedicated to the Lord. But but I want you to think about how hard this would have been. I mean, we just kind of, you know, it's just easy for us to just brush over it and think, you know, well, of course she fulfilled the vow. But think about how hard that would have been. She said, "I, I will give him over to the Lord when the child has been weaned. In this culture, most scholars are in agreement that weaning of a child occurred at the age of about three or four. So I want you to think about that. Hannah has spent three years with this child, three years, and by this point, he would have been able to walk and talk, and so she would have heard him say, Mom, I love you. And she would have felt that wet, slobbery kiss on her cheek. Think about the bond that would have been formed between Hannah and this child. And now she gives him over to the Lord. Y'all, this isn't something that would have been easy to have done, and yet she goes through it that she is committed to honoring the vow that she has made. She's committed to honoring the vow that she's made that is how she responds We're told she lent him to the lord That's the language that is used at the end of the passage now that that makes us think like She's just kind of giving him to the lord and then the lord will give him back in like a week You know kind of like our lawnmower, right? I lend it to my neighbor I'll get it back in a couple days. Hopefully i'll get it back one day, right? Like that's not what's going on here You see that word lent the, it's a verb, and in the form that it's found in verse 28, it has the connotation of entrusting. That's what Hannah is doing. She is taking her son and entrusting him into the care of the Lord, and she is doing it forever. Now, that is shocking because a Nazarite vow was for a limited period of time. Most Nazarite vows would be for like a week. A month, a few years, something of that nature. But Hannah is entrusting the Lord forever. That's what she said, right? All the days of his life, as long as he lives, she's committing him to the service of the Lord. See, she responds to God's care for her with commitment. But she also responds to God's care with thanks. With thanks. You see, Hannah understands. She knows that what has happened the birth of Samuel, it is a result of God and God alone. He is the one who heard her prayers and he is the one who answered. And so when she takes Samuel to entrust him into the Lord's service, she makes an offering, a thank offering. She sacrifices a bowl and flour and wine. Now again, don't let this pass by. right? We're so used to seeing the people in, in the Bible, they respond in thanks and celebration and rejoicing. But 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 I want you to think about the last time you asked God for something And he gave it to you And I want you to think about your response to that Like, like how easy are we to, to receive whatever it is that we ask for And then we just move on to the next thing We start asking for the next thing Or we, we find a reason for, for understanding how it happened outside of God, right? Like I got that job because I killed the interview I was so prepared That's why I got the job Right, that girl, she said yes to that date because, well, look at me, I'm pretty good, right? Like that's what we not me, but you know, this is what we do, right? This is what we do. We start coming up with all the reasons that it was me who contributed to it. It was me who made it happen, or it was something someone or something other than God, right? It's okay, you can admit it. It actually reminds me of Acts chapter 12. In Acts chapter 12, Peter, he's arrested by Herod, and he's placed in jail. And we're told that the church, when he's placed in jail, that they, they prayed excessively for, for Peter. They prayed for his release, for him to be delivered. And so they're praying, and, and, and in the middle of the night, God miraculously sends an angel to stage a prison break. And Peter escapes. It's the middle of the night, and so he goes and he knocks on the door of one of the houses to which they were praying. They've just been praying for Peter, and now he's staying at the door. So he knocks on the door, and it's the middle of the night, and so this little girl comes, and she hears Peter's voice, and in her her excitement, she goes running. She forgets to unlock the door, so Peter's still outside. And she goes and tells those people who are praying for Peter, hey, y'all, Peter's outside, and do you know what they did? You can look it up. I love that this is in the Bible. They look at her and say, you're out of your mind. That's what it says. That is not the penny translation. That is what it says. You're out of your mind. There's no way Peter's outside because he's in Herod's jail. It must be his ghost. That's what they said. Okay, think about how crazy that, like y'all are laughing and rightfully so because they were just asking God to do something miraculous and he does something miraculous and they can't believe it. And we're just like that. We're just like it. We are constantly looking for reasons to attribute what has happened to ourselves or to someone else or to something else. And we forget to say, God, thank you. Thank you for giving me that job. Thank you for giving me that child. Thank you for giving me that spouse. Thank you for giving me those friends. Thank you. And that's exactly what Hannah did. She understood that she had that son because of God's care, because of God's love, because of God's goodness. She gives him thanks. And friends, so must we. That is the right response. When we know that God has heard us, when we know that God has cared for us by sending his son, when we know that God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness, that's what the scriptures tell us. We may not get that dream job, and we may not get that dream house, and we may not get that spouse, we may not get... But that God has given us everything that we need for life and for godliness through his son we give him thanks. We give him thanks, and we commit our lives to giving him thanks, to living lives of thanks, and so people of God, those to whom God has shown care, let us do that now. Let us give him thanks. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for all that you have done. We know that if we took the time to recount everything that you have done for us, that that we would be here for many days. Because everything that we have, even the very breath that we take, it is a gift from you, and so we thank you. We thank you for all that you have given us, and we thank you most of all for giving us your Son, our Lord Jesus, who lived and died and rose again so that we can stand before you thankful. So fill our hearts with thanksgiving at your care for us, and allow us to see your care in our lives, so that our lives would be lived before you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, and God's people said together, amen. I'll invite the ushers to come forward, and we'll take this morning's tithes and offerings.